I, I imagine you've noticed how um, social media gives us, uh, it's, it seems to give, it's one of those give with one hand, take with the other. It's made it easier than ever to find like-minded people. Huh? Seems like a gift, but that, that also makes it so easy to enter into what's come to be called an echo chamber, where we're hearing uh, every voice we hear is affirming exactly what we already think and driving us further and further into our positions, hardening those positions. And, and so the result that we see, we just look across our social landscape and there's a hardening of position on almost any issue as people enter those echo chambers. And one of those chambers is about parenting. You ready to get your toes stepped on? <laughs> if you have entered one of those chambers and you've spent much time there, you may think that the Bible is perfectly clear about all the decisions a late modern parent must make. That the Bible speaks with perfect clarity on what kind of food you should serve kids, sleep schedules, the sleeping arrangements in the house. Perfectly clear about who should babysit your kids and not. How you should discipline. What sort of freedoms they should have. It's perfectly clear about schooling. Media exposure. Toys, whether they should be wood or plastic. I mean, the Bible talks about that. Um, Media exposure, of course, yes. Ad nauseum, on, on, on. I do not think the Bible speaks with perfect clarity on all those matters. If it did, it would have been a little useless to certain cultures. It would not have served both medieval knights and peasants. It would not have served Roman senators and slaves parents, that is, Anglo-Saxon parents, and Pacific Islanders, farm families from Iowa, uh, and hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari, nomadic Hebrews, and urbanites in Seattle. And yet, there are universal principles. There are. They're embedded, they're assumed in the scriptures, Sometimes they're explicitly stated. Toes released. One of those principles that's universal is imitation. Imitation, all humans, but especially the, the rapidly changing young ones, learn by imitation. It's not just assumed in the Bible, it's explicitly stated. And every ancient culture knew this and taught about it. The most famous articulations were by Plato and Aristotle among the Greeks. And both of those Greeks taught that imitation shaped not only behavior, but that by shaping behavior, it shaped the values of the young person, underlying values that issued out in behavior. So imitation, imitating those older and especially adults, would form a child's character. So Plato taught. 
And then at the time of the early church, this teaching of Plato and Aristotle had become assumed across the Greek world. It was, it was just shared by everyone. Now I begin with this because imitation as the way of growth and learning and development is assumed by Paul in this second letter to the Corinthians. It is being invoked by Paul in the passage today as he's writing to the Greeks of Corinth. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Please be looking with me. If we're going to grasp the, the big point of this passage, because it's an odd passage. It starts in one place and it seems to go somewhere very different. You heard it read. If we're going to understand the big point, we need to have this idea ready as a lens for reading because it's being used. So as we've been going through this second letter, I, I've drawn attention to this motif, haven't I? This way that Paul teaches. He stated it in his first letter, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He told them in the first letter. He uses that continually in this letter also. Now, modern Americans, we can find that off-putting, can't we? We hear Paul say that. Ah, Paul, he sounds proud. I don't, I don't like that. Seems like he's saying, see how good I am? Don't you want to be like me? But if we pay close attention at all to to not just that statement, but what he's calling them to imitate when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look at what he's asking them to imitate. That should dissolve that hesitance we feel and actually show it's our own pride not wanting to admit we need to learn and change. We actually need to imitate. That's what keeps us back. That's what we don't like. That's why we don't like to hear Paul say, imitate me. I don't, I don't have any, I don't need to grow. How dare you, Paul, suggest that I, I have a need for change? Well, like, like us, these Corinthians needed to be open to change. They needed to hear that message. But especially at this moment in their life together, their pride and their foolishness had been exposed. It had been on full display because they had shown a willingness, you'll remember, to believe false teachers. Uh, Paul had been there. Peter had been there. Apollos had been there. Establishing these house churches. And in their wake, some false teachers had come in. And whether it had been one of those already established churches or one that, that developed from them, at least a few of those small churches and their leaders had been willing to welcome false teachers. And they had also shown a willingness to be deceived. They'd been easily led astray. And then some of them had gotten into one of these echo chambers where there in that house church, they were all nodding along. Yeah, this this, this teaching, they, didn't, they weren't calling it false, this teaching sounds better than what we were getting from Paul and Peter. So at least a few of them were thinking they were better than what the other churches had. But this deception had become clear to all the churches. 
Paul had written a sharp reminder of the gospel that cut through the nonsense. The gospel had been laid out before them. They had, they had to accept, yeah, that's not what we've been acknowledging. That's not what we've been doing. And they were humbled. We, we heard in the first part of the letter, they'd been humbled. They'd acknowledged it. Yes, we, we had accepted this. And so what had happened there is they'd become childlike again. They'd accepted that position acknowledging, yeah, we need to learn. We need to know how to imitate what's good and right. So what you see their embarrassment, that stumbling, helped them to be open to correction and to growth again. So that's why Paul in this letter has dwelt so much on the gospel. Have you noticed that through these weeks? It's just gospel, 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 week after week. And it's very refreshing. It's building up. And he's returned again and again what it looks like to live the gospel, to live in the way of Jesus, the suffering king. So here in chapter 6, he presents an instructive contrast on, on this point. Because he doesn't want them to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 1 in chapter 6. And because of that, because he, he wants them to actually re be receiving the grace, he's going to show how grace is received. The time for them to respond is now. As he's presenting this. Is, this isn't just, you know, for your information, tuck it away. When it becomes relevant, then you'll, you know, then receive grace. The time is now. It's always now. He's quoting Isaiah 49. He urges them to hear the Lord say, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a time of favor, I heeded your cry. In a time when I was favorable to you, I was ready to respond. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. In Isaiah 49, you could glance at it now or, or later. Those words, they're a bridge between uh, the suffering servant being presented when, when the suffering servant is appearing and the fulfillment of the kingdom. So he appears and then this statement, this is the favorable time. I've heard you. Now is the time. And so the, the gospels come. That's our time. We're in that. The Corinthians were in that. It's for them. It's for us, Idahoans. Now is the time of grace. Now is the time of salvation. The Lord is favorable towards us. Right now, this morning, as we're sitting here, we have the Lord's smile on us. We have His favor. He's ready to receive our burdens, our cries. He's ready to be merciful to us as we've wandered. He's ready to grant the desire to imitate. Now's the time. So to do so, to live in the grace of God, Paul offers his own life as an example. Now there's, there's nothing, again, we're probably, we're going to be quick to say, uh, oh, I don't like that. Why would, that sounds proud. 
There is nothing in what he says that draws attention or points to his own abilities, his skills, powers that he has. There's nothing that says, look at my aptitudes, look at, look at the good stuff I've done. Because he even he acknowledges those things would be obstacles. They'd be obstacles in others' way. We, he says, we don't put those things in front of you. They would result in faults in their ministry. So if Paul, like those other teachers, were to draw attention to his skills, that would, just, that would be a fault in his ministry. It would be an obstacle in the receiving of grace. No, he is talking about receiving the grace of God and living in God's strength. That's what he wants you to imitate. So look at how this has been at work in me. Look at how my weakness has shown God's grace. And so this is what he's commending. He says, I, I'm commending this in every way. So what he cites here as worthy of imitation is not at all attractive, isn't it? You look at this. Ah, what a list. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings. I don't want that. Imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. I mean, even just those last two, that is a recipe for a hangry, unpleasant day, right? That We've experienced that. Imprisonments, beatings, riots. If you want a more complete record of his sufferings, just read the second half of Acts. This is, this is just a summary, executive summary statement. It's not that these experiences in themselves are worthy of imitation. So a, a person can go through things like this for a bad cause. You need only look at really committed communists. They might experience some of those things. But Paul can commend this life for imitation because of what follows. It's not just the sufferings themselves. It's that through these experiences, he's been kept in grace. He's been held and upheld by grace. Verses 6 through 7. In all of those things, what's commending, what's commending the life is purity. Knowledge, patience, having kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness, rightness, for the right hand and for the left. So in these trials and miseries, in the calamities, the beatings and the sufferings, in the afflictions, what he's saying is, we simply stood in all of that. Here's what we did. We just stood. We stood with what we had been given. Whatever truth we'd been given, we held on to it. We didn't add to it. It's, it was just pure and simple. Whatever knowledge we had, we just held on to it. The thread of all of those virtues, 
There's, there's some common, commonality to them. It's the simple truth of God. Even if we're talking about the, by the Holy Spirit, that's the personal truth of God indwelling. So holding fast to what God has given them. That's what gave them power to stand in integrity through the misery. Misery itself is not redemptive. But standing in the truth of God, it is. It redeems those things. It, it shows that the grace of God is at work. But that didn't mean the world rejoiced. This, we get a little presumptuous on this. I do. Maybe you. When you stand in the simple truth, you stand with integrity amidst the hard time, it's easy to think the world should rejoice. You see, the, this, this is the grace of God. But Paul says his faithfulness and our faithfulness doesn't mean we'll be celebrated and applauded. This is like the results uh, that Jesus talks about when he sows the seed. The sower sows it on different soils and the results are mixed. Paul says he gave this testimony to the truth. He gave it through honor and dishonor. Through slander and praise. He says we are treated as imposters and yet we're true as unknown, and yet we are well known, as dying, yet we live. We're treated as if we're punished, and we are being punished, and yet not killed. Yet always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, we, we, this testimony has been given through poverty, and yet... We're making many people rich. Having nothing yet possessing everything. This description this should sound familiar because it's, it's a, a description that occurs numerous times in Scripture. It echoes Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. And it lines up pretty neatly with that actual servant with the ministry of Jesus. Remember how Jesus says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they've persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They call me Beelzebub. They're going to hate you. No servant is greater than his master. And yet here we have Paul embracing that. He's... He's embracing this, this role. He's embracing and commending and taking delight in a life full of rejection and slander and shame because it's the path of Jesus. Because he knows, as Jesus walked, I will walk. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is worthy. He's showing it comes with the same, those sufferings that Jesus experienced came with great grace and power for him. What Paul has experienced 
comes with the same grace that was given to Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. So how else could there be rejoicing with suffering? How else could there be riches with poverty? And the joy of being known by God in the midst of being ignored by other people, passed over by other people, just dismissed by other people. How can there be joy in that? I am known by God. Personal side note here. Uh, I've been thinking about this over the last few weeks because as we walk through chapters 4, 5, and 6, 2 Corinthians, these were the chapters that sustained me during uh, that, that COVID pandemic period. You recall that? There were some really unpleasant times there, particularly I had no idea what to do. There was decision upon decision when it was not clear what ought to be done. Uh, every decision was scrutinized, made somebody unhappy, made other people very happy, no matter the decision. There was that, that, uh, that terrible thing that people who had known me for years, you experienced this, I'm sure, You'd known me for years, and it was, it was most painful when from those very lips I had heard appreciation for my integrity. And then rejection. They could not believe I would do or think something. This passage was a comfort. It was a great comfort. Because like verses 6 and 7, I'd been given enough to go on. That's how I felt. I'd been given enough, enough truth to go on. And with whatever truth I had, I tried to act in righteousness, just as I know you did. We tried to act justly and rightly. And the results were mixed. They were mixed. They were full of sorrow. And yet, the truth of what he's describing here was also present. Despite the sorrow, despite the rejection, there was always this simmering joy. It was a low-level joy, but it, it was there. It was there because there was an assurance that I can speak for myself, I, I was trying to act with integrity. I was trying to please the one to whom I am accountable. And because of that, there's joy, despite the other stuff. It's a strange thing we, we have in this life. As the Lord gives, He gives grace, He gives truth, and whatever we face, that grace is there holding us, sustaining us. And if we, we do what we can to hold fast to him, there's joy in it. Now, back to the text. Because he's saying that is the walk. It's worthy of imitation. Now, it seems at this moment like there's a, a jarring shift. As 
as we're reading, to another subject. It is not. It is not. It is the same subject. Paul is still teaching about imitation and the results of imitation. He's, so he's just commended the way of Jesus Christ, which he has adopted. He's shown how he lives it as their spiritual father, and he speaks to them. He says, uh, he's urging them, verses 13, 11 to 13, receive his grace, receive the way of grace, like his children, so imitate him as a father. Now, like his children. And then he turns to a caution, as a good father should. Here's the way to go. Now, don't go this way. And here's the caution. He knows, just as we do, that bad company corrupts good morals. He knows that imitation works both ways, both good and bad. So he warns about the way against Christ. Here is the way. Let me warn you about this way. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Yoking, it's an animal metaphor, right? Oxen and horses, they get yoked. They're teamed up to pull plows, to pull carts, to pull chariots. Yoke is the bar that runs across them. The yoke holds them together. It keeps them walking together. Keeps one from wandering off. Keeps them together. Jesus yokes his followers to himself. Walk by me. He says, my yoke, the one that if you yoke, if you're yoked to me, my yoke is easy because he's carrying the burden. My burden is light. So Paul brings this image, yoking, he brings it up and says, Christians are not to imitate or have intimate fellowship with unbelievers. This doesn't mean not having friendship or not having dealings. We'd have to go out of the world. We live and move amongst those who don't know Jesus, many even hostile to him. This doesn't mean that. How, how could we speak the gospel to someone who's not heard it if we're not in fellowship? But yoking, this image, the image communicates the point, doesn't it? It is walking in step, taking your cues from, being linked up with, moving in the same direction with. So to underscore the point, he gives some contrasts, as we see. What accord or agreement is there between Christ and Belial? Belial, that's a Hebrew title for Satan, means the worthless one. What inheritance portion, what inheritance, does a believer share with an unbeliever? You're not in the same family. You're going to re be receiving something very different. What agreement has the temple of God with that of idols? Now, this, this last contrast, uh, it, it sets up, it, it gets an extended treatment. It gets an extended treatment um, of, of commands from God to Israel because it needs more attention. Corinth was full of idols. We've talked about that in previous weeks. Corinth, it's a seaport. Uh, there's a huge temple of Aphrodite on the hilltop overlooking the, the, the town of Corinth. Hundreds and hundreds of temple prostitutes there. 
And so the Christians find themselves living amongst these temples, living amongst the idols that they used to worship. And so he quotes, Lest you miss it, Corinthians, God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So the issue is, verse 16, we are the temple of the living God. So because God has sent his Holy Spirit into us, into our hearts, he's dwelling in us, he's living among us, he's walking among us, and our bodies are to be honored as belonging to God. They, they function like temples, houses in which God lives. So being a temple for the holy God does not go along with temples of idols. And it's, it's all the more kind of in our face in Corinth because in those temples of Aphrodite, Zeus, Apollo, Poseidon, sex was a way of worshiping. So worship was, wasn't, it was bodily, not just in the sense of I go to the temple, but I give myself in that act. I give myself to this God. And surely, I mean, Paul had to pull his hair out. How can you, who have the Holy Spirit in you, whose body is a temple, how can you offer that? How could you even conceive of participating, even being in such a place? They don't go together. What is there common between them? The kingdoms are different. The destinations are different. The journey is different. Well, we don't have that in such explicit terms. But the principles are still all there, aren't they? If you walk in step, you're yoked with people who ignore and reject the kingdom of Jesus and they reject the kingship of Jesus. The claim of Jesus on us then you will begin to imitate them. The fact is we are imitative. We will imitate. That's part of who we are as humans. So if you live, if you live in an echo chamber of a political party, if you've given yourself to that, any political party, you will begin to imitate th those people. Those values will become your values. They'll become your essential values. If you are absorbed, and I, you have to be the judge of your level of absorption. If you are absorbed by any form of media or any uh, ideologically committed news outlet, or any social media platform, you will imitate what is given you there. What we give ourselves to, what we worship, we become. 
So unless you are submitted to the Holy Spirit, unless you're listening to the truth of God's Word, that, that formative Word, you will be formed from the outside in. God's Word forms us from the inside out. God's speaking, His truth in us, it goes to our hearts, shapes our affections and our desires, the, shapes our loves, the things we want. If, if you are listening to the Holy Spirit, if you're letting His Word go in, that is happening to you. It's working. Praise be to God, it's working. If you are not doing that, you are being formed in some other way. There's no escaping this. We're being formed. You're being formed from the outside in. Either grace is changing you or some other voice of authority. You can always find partners for any other way. You can always be, get yoked up. It's always there. There's a chat room. There's a Facebook page. There's a website for any pursuit, any love you could imagine. That's not our journey. We are on the journey to the peaceful realms. We are on the journey to the place of joy and everlasting life. The peaceful realms, that's our place. So hear Paul. Hear the word. Since we have these promises, since we have our place secure, since we have our identity in Christ secure, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion, fulfillment, its, its maximum in the fear and reverence of God. We offer ourselves to God, not to anything else. That's the sermon done. Just one, one note. Part of what we're doing, when we come together to worship, the word is read. The word is taught. The word is going in if we are receiving it. God's grace is doing its work. We respond to that by getting out of our seats. We're responding to the gospel. We move forward. That forward movement that you make, every time we do it, this forward movement is offering ourselves. We even say it in some of the liturgies. We offer you ourselves, our souls, our bodies. That's why we get up. We're embodying the offering of the self. And we move forward. These are signs of the grace of God that's given us. One of us here, we're giving you this sign. This, it, it's, such a, it's so real. Jesus gave us something real and tangible so that we would recognize this is so real, the grace that you're, you're being, that he has for us. It's as real as bread. When you chew it and it goes into your stomach, that's where it's going. That reality, which not, we don't deny that, the gift of grace is that real. It's that real. He is so willing to offer and give and sustain. We don't receive that without the gospel. If you notice that, you're, in our tradition, we never take communion without the gospel being preached. Because that's our response. 
Otherwise, it, it's untethered. It's tethered to the gospel, to that clear offer of grace. Lord, we ask, we ask now that you would give us a, an appetite for you. Would, you. would you awaken spiritual hunger to know you better? Awaken in us a desire that your word would go in, that your word would do its transformative work in us. Not just this morning, yes, but each day as we come to the word. Lord, let it have its full effect. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.